Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland. We take timeless biblical truth and help you to apply it in the context of your daily life. If you'd like to join us live at one of our campuses or stream one of our services online, go to peavine.org for times, locations, and more information. Thank you to our worship team. I know all of our campuses, great job this morning. Take your Bibles, if you will, Hebrews chapter 12. I started a few weeks ago my sermon series, I Want You for the Lord's Army. What does God want from you to enlist in his army? What is he expecting of you? And we're just hitting uh, the basics of the Christian life. Let's start here, right? And so we've, we've looked at two sermons so far. Number one, I want you to take care of you. What does that mean? God wants you to take care of you, and it means three things. Number one, he wants you to know that you're saved. Be saved and know that you're saved. Number two, he wants you to be baptized, and because that's the first command after salvation. And then number three, he wants you to be a member of a church. Well, that segued into the next week where the second sermon we looked at was God. What does God want for you? Number two, he wants you to take care of the church. And we talked about using your gifts, your passions, your abilities to serve the Lord. And thank you. Man, last week, hundreds of people poured forward. It's going to be such a blessing as you were signing up for the Lord's Army. Jeremy has a C4 going on today. There'll be nearly 70 people in that, and we'll get another class very soon. We're excited about that. So, so what does God want? Number one, he wants you to take care of yourself. Number two, he wants you to take care of the church. Number three, what does God want from you? I'm going to make, say it as plain as I can. Number one, he, here it is. He wants you to take care of your sin. Take care of your sin. Now, I'll get into that in just a moment. Give me, an, uh, uh, give me a minute to get there. What kind of New Year's resolutions you make this year? Hey, let's do this. How many of you, if you're, watching, if you're watching online or at a campus, you raise your hand too, all right? How many of you made at least one New Year's resolution this year? Let me see your hand. You made one. You've got it written down somewhere. You made one. A bunch of us, best I can tell. And um, we, New Year's re- resolution's a thing, right? We know a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. Here's what the research tells us, that 38.5% of adults in the United States set New Year's resolutions every year. Every year. So about, about four out of 10 adults in general make a New Year's resolution. So you turn the corner in December. You're heading towards January. You're looking at 2023 or whatever year it may have been. And four out of 10 of you every single year are saying, I got this this year. I'm, I'm going to nail it. Not only that, uh, research tells us that basically six out of 10 young adults, that's age 18 to 34, have New Year's resolutions, which makes it the largest demographic that sets these goals. So now put it in perspective, right? 18 to 34 year olds. Obviously, that's the sweet spot for making New Year's resolutions. Why? Because when you're a little bit younger, uh, you, you've, you've got stuff you're trying to change. You've got a lot of stuff you're trying to do better. Uh, you want to improve your life. You're thinking about maybe college. You're, you're thinking about parenting. You're thinking about your family. You're thinking about your job. You're, you're thinking about your health. And so six out of 10 young adults every year make some kind of New Year's resolution. I think that tracks, but what also tracks is this. People over 55 are 3.1 times less likely to have resolutions compared to younger adults. The older someone becomes, the less likely they will have New Year's resolutions. 
Now, doesn't this just make a little sense right here? Because by the time you're a senior adult, you're a little bit like, I don't care. Is what it is right at this point in my life. My, my wife had some real estate customers years and years ago, and they were in their 80s. They were in their 80s. She was at their house. She was doing some stuff with them. She was there multiple occasions. And um, she, she came out and told me the story. She said, this little lady, she has a cake on the counter every day of the week. Like that she bakes a cake or two every week and they just eat a cake or a pie all week long. They're just fit and trim and they look so good and they're in their 80s. And, and, but they're always eating cake. I can't smell cake without gaining weight. But, but here are these, these senior adults, these little thin, trim senior adults, 80-something years old, eating cake. My wife asked her, what is your secret? How can you eat cake and lose, stay so trim as what you are? And she said, oh, honey, I don't know. She said, a couple years ago, I said to my husband, I said, John, we might want to think about getting healthier. John said, honey, we 80. What are you looking for in life? We're fine. We're fine. And by the time you get that old, there's no New Year's resolutions. You, if you make it to the new year, you celebrate, and it is what it is, right? Yeah, we're glad to be here. I'm that way at 50 at 29. Anyway, and so um, uh, us younger kids, we make resolutions. All right, here's what we know. 23% quit your New Year's resolution in the first week and only 36% make it past the first month. What, what does that mean? Can I flip that statistic on, on its head? Uh, 64% of people quit their, all their New Year's resolutions within the first month. 23% don't make it out of the week. That's what amazes me. Like Sunday night, you're saying, Sunday night, this year, maybe it was January 1st. Sunday night, January the 1st, you're, you're a little bit like, you know what? I'm going to start eating healthier. By Friday, you're like, I give up. I give up. I'm done, you know, and it's over with. But 30, here's a couple more things, and I love it. Only 9% keep their New Year's resolutions to the end of the year and make it. And then most people, I didn't know this, most people quit on the second Friday of the month. Second Friday of the month, which means you long ago quit your New Year's resolutions. I know you. According to Strava, running and cycling tracking app, they named this day Quitter's Day. Quitter's Day. Because by the second Friday of the month, you're done. And people don't open their app after the second Friday. They're done by the second Friday. Well, what are you quitting by mid-January? Here's, and look, this is the 2023 list according to surveys, and it's about the same every single year. Uh, top on the list, people want to improve their physical health. Tied with that is saving more money, then exercising more, eating healthier. So three of the top four have to do with your health. You know, about 60% of the people are doing something healthy. Uh, 17 are being happy, 17%, 70% losing weight, paying down debt. It, it's about the same thing every single year. So we have these New Year's resolutions that we do at the beginning of the year. We quit. I mean, a good portion of us are done within a week. All of us, nearly 64% are done by the end of the month. And then only 9% make it the rest of the year. That is what our New Year's resolutions look like. But when you look at this list of New Year's resolution, can I show you one thing that's not on this list? One thing that God would write on your list. If he were making your New Year's resolutions, he would have you put this. Get rid of sin. Nobody ever puts on their New Year's resolutions, I want to stop sinning in 2023. I want to get rid of this particular sin. Now, 
What we may have are some generalized spiritual goals, right? We may have seen these general spiritual goals that I want to get closer to God. I want to be a better Christian, but we don't have on there. I want to get rid of this sin in your life. Yet if God could get you to write one thing and get you ready for his army, he needs you to deal with those sins in your life that are trying to wreck and ruin your life. And make no mistake, every sin in your life, no matter how small you think it may be, every Every sin in your life is trying to wreck and trying to ruin your life. And if you give them enough rain, if you let them go long enough, if you pray, play around with them long enough, they all will do that, wreck and ruin your life. The Bible says this, that sin eventually leads to death. It's going to kill something every time. So what sin is it that's eating your lunch? Right? For some people, it's a Sin of the mouth. Your mouth gets you in trouble. I won't ask you to raise your hand. Is it an attitude that gets you in trouble? Is it an addiction? Alcohol, drugs, pornography, gambling. And all the women just looked at their husbands like, yeah, yeah, that's your problem. Did you know, I I looked this up, the number one addiction among women, do you know what it's called? Compulsive buying disorder. 16% of the women in the United States are diagnosed with compulsive buying disorder. You know what that means? You have a shopping addiction. Maybe your sin is unfaithfulness. Maybe it's not giving, not being in church, not praying, not reading your Bible. Maybe your sin is doubt. I mean, what a great song our worship team just sang about trusting God. God, you, you did it for Abraham. You did it for Moses. And you, you can do it for me as well. It's the same God. Doubt is a sin in the Bible. Now, now here's the truth. I'm not going to sit up here and name sins all morning long because I would never name yours. But the fact is, you know what yours is. And when I say that God wants you to get rid of sin in your life, you know what the sin is. Something came to your mind. Some things came to your mind. It is something in your life that you're dealing with, that you're wrestling with, that needs to be dealt with in order for you to be effective in the Lord's army. So I'm going to say this all morning. So I'm going to go ahead and say, if I were guessing, I would think that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I think there's plenty of evidence for the apostle Paul writing the book of Hebrews. The reason I'm telling you that is we're reading from Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. And I'm going to say, Paul said all morning long, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of speculation, but for the sake of my sermon, we're going with Paul. You come to your own conclusion. Let's stand together. Hebrews chapter 12. It'll be on the screen. If you don't have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 12. Let me walk you through this uh, passage just for a a moment and uh, let's look at getting rid of the sin in our lives. Thank you. All right. So look, Hebrews chapter 12, verse one, Paul said this, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now I need to explain that just a little bit because in some, in some uh, theologians, they think, well, verses one and uh, at least needs to go back with chapter number 11. Why chapter number 11? Because chapter number 11 is what we call the Christian roll call of faith. And so in chapter number 11, these witnesses he's talking about in chapter 12 are those people he's mentioned in chapter 11. So flip back in chapter 11. We're not going to read chapter 11 by any stretch of the imagination. 
imagination. But if you just look back at verse one, you just let your eyes scan um, your, your Bible. He's talking about Abel. He's talking about Enoch. He's talking about Noah. He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Moses. He's talking about Sarah. And then he goes on down. Isaac, you, you read some more. And then he gets on down towards the end. And he said, uh, he talks about Rahab and he talks about Samson and David and Samuel and the prophets. And so he goes down this list of people. And then he says, there's, there's a whole lot more than that. So, so Paul goes on and he's saying, Hey, we have a great cloud of witnesses. Now he's talking about a sporting event. So immediately your mind thinks, well, he's talking about a spectator crowd. And in some sense he is, but by no means is Paul indicating that all of heaven is watching you run your waist. The matter of fact, the word there is is really where we get our word testimony from. And what Paul is saying is this, that we have all of these testimonies that have gone on before us, all of these people who have run their race before you. And so we've had all of these testimonies, Hebrews chapter 11, that have already crossed the finish line and they are there to give testimony to us that the race can be what? So we've got all these testimonies surround us. Now look back at verse number one. He said, then let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnared the hindrance and the sin. So we'll look at those in a moment. But again, he's talking about sin and he's talking about hindrances. We'll, we'll dive in in a moment. He said, let us run the, let us run with endurance. So now here's where we're getting to. Paul is using the imagery of a race. And so he said, if you're going to run the Christian race, you've got to run with endurance. What? The race that lies before us. I'll say it again in a moment. The word race there in the Greek is the word Agon is where we get our word agony from. And that tells you a little bit about the Christian life, right? That we are running this race life before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, right? Looking at Jesus, the source, the initiator, the completer of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross despise the shame and sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now you've got to notice that phrase because the Bible said, who for the joy that was set before him. In other words, Jesus ran his race with joy, even though Paul tells us this, that his race uh, was enduring the cross, despising the shame, um, and then he sat down. So he went through difficult times and then sat down. Verse number three, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. Thank you, you may be seated. About, about did all my preaching there in the beginning. All right, so let's, let's talk about it. So when we, we turn to chapter 12, Paul is uh, now telling us this. He's just gone over the Christian roll call of faith. And now he's saying, chapter 12, here's literally what he's telling us. Here's how you get your name in chapter 11 of Hebrews. We want to stand before God one day and hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We want to stand before God one day, be able to say what Paul said. I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul said, here's how you do it. These first four verses of chapter 12 will tell you how you can get your name in chapter 11, the roll call of faith. Let me give you three things this morning that'll help us. Number one is this, don't let sin slow you down. Don't let sin 
slow you down. Now, Paul is using the imagery of a race, but get this, it is not a, it is not a uh, sprint he's talking about. The imagery of the race is without a doubt um, a marathon he's talking about, which was a Greek invention of the day. So Paul is talking about a long distance race. Paul is talking about a long distance cross country race. And so many Christians I know are in it for the sprint, but they're not in it for the long haul. And you can be a good Christian for a week or for a month or for a few months, but God is looking for people who will be a a good Christian and walk with him for all of their lives. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And if you want to be in it for the marathon, here's what he said you had to do. First of all, you had to lay aside, lay aside. What does he mean by lay aside? It means to take off, put down, or to put away. Paul said, you have to lay aside. Now go back and look, 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 look with me, if you will, in chapter, uh, in verse number one, he said, let us lay aside. Notice this word. It's a key word. Every, every hindrance, every hindrance and the sin. It, the indication is every hindrance, every sin. Like, like God doesn't want you playing around with these things. God doesn't want you playing around with hindrances and with sins. It is a total elimination of the hindrances in your life and a total elimination of the sin that's in your life. That everything in your life that is contrary to the word of God should be dealt with. And so what are those things? Two, quickly. Number one, should lay aside every hindrance. Hindrance. The word means weight, mass, burden. Now, here... Literally, you do a little background on the word and what Paul is using here in the etymology of all this. Paul is thinking of the Greek games, the Olympics, so to speak, back in his day. And, and Paul has been watching runners his whole life who ran these games and they would lay aside every extra weight. What did they mean by every extra weight? Well, if you dive deep enough, you figure out, here's what he's talking about. And he literally, when the runners talked about laying aside weight, they wanted to lay aside two things. One was additional fat on your body that would slow you down. Number two was clothing. You say, well, they wore short shorts. Eh, They most of the time stripped down to nothing. And they were running the race in the nude. Now, that has no inclination to the Christian life whatsoever. Right? You don't have to be skinny to serve Jesus. You do need to have clothes on to serve Jesus. But that's the minutia they were getting into as an athlete. I I don't want anything to hinder me in this race, so I'm going to get rid of any excess body fat I may have. I'm not even going to wear clothes because that little bit of drag that clothes may put on my body, I want to get rid of that clothing, and I I want to be able to run the race with efficiency. I want to be able to run the race well, and so I'm going to lay aside a hindrance that might be slowing me down. And so listen, for us, we need to apply that same thing to our Christian life. There are some things that could slow us down in our Christian life. 
life. So, for example, there may be some things that are slowing you down from being the Christian dad you ought to be, the Christian husband you ought to be, the Christian mom you ought to be, the Christian parent you ought to be, the Christian wife you ought to be, the Christian teenager you ought to be, uh, whatever it may be. There's some things that are slowing down your Christian life, and here's the deal. You're not walking with God. Why? Because it's, we, we're not necessarily going to put it in the category of a sin, but it's a hindrance to serving God. And a lot of times those things are um, not sin, but they aren't necessary. And so we waste our time and we waste our life on things that don't matter for eternity. And we let those hindrances. There's many people watching at a campus or in a room somewhere or in this room. And, and you can look at me with a straight face and say, well, preacher, I don't have any major sins going on in life. By the way, we're not just concerned about major, we're concerned about minor. But some of you sit here and say, I don't, I don't know of any sin in my life, but yet you've got hindrances in your life. You're wasting your life doing things and it's slowing you down. So Paul said, lay aside every hindrance, but, but number two, lay aside every sin. It's the typical word for sin, missing the mark of God's righteousness. Anything that's contrary to his word, or against it or not. He said, so I want you to lay aside hindrances. I want you to lay aside sin. And again, if the Holy Spirit brought something to your mind, that's it, lay aside hindrances, lay aside sin. You need to get rid of all of those out of your life. Why? Because I want you to run the race. The marathon that's set before you. Again, the Greek word is agon for race. It is the word, it's where we get our word agonize from. That there is some agony in this race. There is some agony in this Christian life. That's why he says in the same verse, you've got to run it with endurance. You've got to run it uh, with patience, with fortitude, with perseverance. The Christian life is a hard one and it takes, here's a word if you want to write it down. It takes a little grit to make it in the Christian life. So run the race with patience, some say. Run the race with endurance. All that's right. Run the race with a little bit of grit in your Christian life. And then he says this, I love it. Run the race that lies before you. What does it mean by that? That there is a race for you. There is a particular race for you. You're not racing your friends. You're not racing your church members. You yourself are trying to run your race and get across the Christian line. And so the reason we're not doing that, the reason we're not crushing in the Christian life is we have all of this stuff that is slowing us down. And the charge by God is this, get rid of anything in your life that is slowing you down or tripping you up. Get rid of it. Everything that's hurting your race, it must go. Because that sin in your life will do a number on your life and it'll cost you your Christian race. I have, I have Bibles everywhere. Do, do you? I have Bibles. I'm waiting on the church at Christmas. Uh, the staff gave me 
uh, money to buy a custom-made Bible. I'm waiting on it to come in sometime in February, hopefully. And my wife gave me some money, my staff and I've got this buffalo skin Bible that's coming in to me, uh, kind of custom-made, that's going to be my preaching Bible. I, I got, but I got Bibles everywhere. I got translations everywhere. That's just the day we live in. Printing a Bible is easy. But I want you to go back a little bit to the 1600s. Like, go back. The Gutenberg Press had just been invented uh, a few, less than a century before that. And now we're in the 1600s and you have to print a Bible. Can you imagine how difficult typesetting would have been? What is typesetting? Typesetting is you have to put every letter on the page put them side by side, and then you do one page of the Bible at a time, and you run it through a press, like an old mimeograph machine, if you remember that. It resembled that a lot of times, or it could have been flat either way, and you pressed it on there and laid it up. But, but it would take hours and hours and hours and hours to lay out one page of the Bible, proofread it, get it right, stamp maybe a thousand copies of it, and then go do the same thing with the next page. And when you look at a Bible, that's literally over a thousand pages long. You can imagine how long it took to do that. Well, in 1631, King Charles I commissioned a new Bible to be printed. He wanted a new edition of the 1611 King James. The 1611 King James, the printing was fraught with errors in it. And so they wanted to correct some of the errors. And so he took the royal printers and the royal royal printer's name was Robert Baker and Martin Lucas. Robert Baker and Martin Lucas. So they told Robert Baker and Martin Lewis, who were the King's printers, we want a 1631 edition, King Charles I of the King James Bible. And they did it. They did it. And they got the thing in circulation. People were reading the Bible. There's one little problem with this Bible. One little problem. I'm going to put it on the screen. You might not be able to see it, but I'll read it. Exodus chapter 20 we're going through the Ten Commandments. They left out a little word. And it says, Exodus 20, 14, thou shalt commit adultery. What's the word they left out? So now everybody's got a copy of a Bible that says thou shalt commit adultery. It became the most popular selling Bible in all of time. Thou shalt commit adultery became known as the wicked Bible, the wicked Bible. As soon as they discovered the error, they, about a thousand copies had been printed and put in circulation. And the king ordered uh, that every copy be rounded up and destroyed immediately. And they did a ruthless job of it. Today, there are only about 12 copies left of that Bible. And they'll sell anywhere from fifty dollars to $100,000 uh, for a Bible. And so people use these as collection items. But here's what I want to go back and tell you. That the printer, Robert Baker was the one responsible for editing the Bible. He is the one that when they discovered it, he was fined by the king a month's wages. He was fired as the royal printer. He went bankrupt and died in debtor's prison. All because one word, not. Thou shalt commit adultery. That sin inclusion cost him everything. And it will you too. 
When you have a sin in your life that you're refusing to get rid of, a weight in your life that you're refusing to lay down, you are costing yourself everything. You say, I haven't been caught yet. Don't, hold on. The Bible says God is merciful. He's slow. He's giving you a chance to repent. But he's going to come knocking on your one door one day. Just ask David. David, who apparently had a copy of this Bible and obeyed it to the T, Exodus twenty fourteen, thou shalt commit adultery. David was going along fine for a moment until the prophet Nathan came knocking at his door. And sin cost him everything. The Bible says the sword never departed from his house from that point forward. His life was a mess from that point forward. Ask Samson, ask Adam. Can we just go down the list? Sin slows you down. Sin messes things up. That's why you must take care of the sin in your life. That's why you must take care of the things that are slowing you down. That's why you cannot allow one hindrance in your life that this morning that whatever God has in your heart and mind, you've got to seek forgiveness and forsake that sin and get rid of it and lay it down and don't let sin slow you down. Second thing he would tell us about this is this all part of that process is number two, keep your focus on the finish and the finisher. Your focus on the finish and the finisher. He says, keeping your eyes on, that means to look intently, right? It, it can be used mer- metaphorically to fix your focus on something. So he says, keeping your eyes on Jesus. Why Jesus? Because he's our ultimate example of the Christian life. The Bible tells us that he is the, the, the Christian standard version calls it the pioneer. That word pioneer there means founder, leader, organizer, originator. He is the pioneer of our faith. It is his faith we are building upon. Not only that, he's the perfecter. In the Greek, this is the only time this word, particular word is used in the New Testament. It, mean, is mean, it literally means he's already crossed the finish line. So we have Jesus who is the originator of our faith. We have Jesus who has already completed the race. The Bible says who for the joy that was set before him, right? Joy endured the cross, despised the shame is now at the right hand of God. So here's what it means. He went through the agony of the race and now he's weeping, reaping the rewards of the finish line. He is our example. He's standing at the finish line, urging you to finish the race. Why do we struggle so much down here with the Christian life? I'll tell you why. Because our focus is not on the finish and our focus is not on the finisher. You know why we don't, we're not successful, successful in the Christian life? Because we keep our eyes on things that are here. We keep our eyes on material things of this world. Hold on. We keep our eyes on the hurts of this world. We keep our eyes on the problems of this world. We keep our eyes on the pleasures of this world. And you cannot run the race for Christ unless you have in your focus Jesus who has already ran the race and who's just standing at the finish line. If you let your mind and focus be full of distractions and difficulties, you'll never run the Christian life the way you should. When our focus is on the wrong things, we let sin into our lives and miss the best God had for us. Did you hear that? When, we, when our focus is on the wrong things, that's when we start letting sin in our lives. And instead of looking to Jesus, keeping our, eye, our focus, our gaze on him, we're looking all around us at the pleasures and problems of this world. And uh, by the way, remember, that's what caused Peter to sink when he walked on water. We're keeping our eyes on the pleasures and problems of this world. And then we keep our eyes off Jesus. And we're missing the whole point of the Christian life. 
we, uh, we took all three kids back in the summertime, three grandkids, not my kids, three grandkids, the zoo. We took them to the zoo. And if you've never taken three boys, three, two, and one to the zoo, uh, have at it. it it's an it's a interesting it's, it's interesting. I'll just leave it at that. Leave it at that. But it, something happened that day, and I literally filed this away and saved it. Here's a picture of my wife and Jack's. And if you were close, you could see. You can't really see it now. But there are monkeys on the other side of this picture you can't see, right? The highlight of the zoo most of the time is the monkeys. And there is a netting between Sherry and Jack's and the monkeys, obviously, to keep us out of the monkeys and the monkeys away from us. But here's the deal. I took this photo. Do you know why? My wife is sitting here going, Jack's, look at the monkeys, look at the monkeys, look at the monkeys, look at the monkeys. And Jack's has become fascinated with the net. And it's got these little squares in it. The net is designed for you to look through it. You shouldn't even see the net. But Jax has seen the net at three years old, and he can't get his mind off the net. And what you're not seeing in here is him picking at the squares and saying, Dee Dee, look at this. And at this point, he's trying to count the number of squares that are in the net. And the whole time, my wife is going, look at the monkeys, look at the monkeys. And the whole time, Jax is going, look at the net, look at the net. We never, he never saw a monkey. Because we couldn't get his focus past what was right in front of his face. We're a little bit like a three-year-old. We're missing what's important with our eyes on the unimportant. Paul said it in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1, Paul said this, so if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Paul is telling us in Colossians, seek things that are above. Keep your focus on Jesus. Keep your mind, your focus on things that are above. He goes on to tell us, talking about the finish. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, according to God's grace that was given to me, I've laid a foundation as a skilled master builder. Another builds on it, but each one of us is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid, the the foundation is Christ Jesus. Here's where we're going. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's works will become obvious. For the day, what day? We'll disclose it. We'll disclose it. And I'm, I'm going to skip for the sake of time. Paul is saying, if you'll keep your eyes on the finish, what is that finish time? That finish line is, is judgment day. That one day you'll stand before the originator and the perfecter of our faith, the the entrepreneur of our faith, the, the completer of our faith, one day you'll stand before him in judgment and you're either gonna have a life of gold, silver, precious stones or a life of wood, hay, and stubble that's gonna be burned up. And if you keep your eyes on Jesus, it'll be gold, silver, precious stones. Why? Because if your focus is on Christ, not the world, not the problems of this world, not the pleasures of this world, if your focus is on Christ, when sin walks in front of you, you're going to say, nah, I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. I, I'm looking at Jesus. I got my eyes on that judgment day one day, standing before an almighty God. I'm not doing that. Let me ask you what's going on in your life right now. Do you want to stand before God with that in your hands? Why don't you get your mind on things above? Get your focus on Jesus and and quit looking at the netting. And get the sin and the hindrances out of your life by keeping your focus on the finish and the finisher. Number three, 
I say this and I'll be done in two minutes. Number three, everything I'm telling you is hard, but it's not that hard. Verse three, keep your eyes on Jesus as our example says this. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep your eyes on Jesus so you won't grow weary. Weary of the soul. The word was used for those who were uh, fatigued beyond despair and literally were tired of living. Here it means tired of the Christian life. What happens when you grow that weary? Paul said, if you're not careful, you'll give up. So he said, I want you to keep your eyes on Jesus so you won't grow weary, so you won't give up. The, the imagery, that same word was used to unstring a bow. You're going to lay your weapon down. He said, I know that you are struggling. Some translations say wrestling, resisting against sin, right? All of us in this room, all of us watching wherever we may be, we are struggling uh, about resisting. We are wrestling sin, right? You rest sin. Can I tell you this morning, sin will fight you. But here's what he said in verse four. Would you, would you look in your Bible? I close mine, but let me, let me show it to you in verse four. It's actually comedy. Verse four, he said in struggling against sin, the word in the Greek's antagonize, where we get our word antagonize from, my Greek's terrible, but in struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now, Paul's not talking about uh, persecution, all right? So many of these Christians were gonna shed blood for the gospel. It's not what he's talking about. He said in resisting sin, you have yet to shed one drop of blood. So here's what Paul was saying. Resisting sin is hard, but come on, it ain't that hard. You've yet to shed blood. Close your Bibles and stand with me. I just gotta, I don't have to land the plane. I'm gonna have to crash it. I don't have time to land it. I'm gonna crash it. How how many of you like macaroni and cheese? Let me see your hand. You like macaroni and cheese? All right, so my daughter, Michaela, she, it was one of her staple foods growing up. She was a picky eater. Here's how picky she was. She would not eat homemade macaroni and cheese, which is really the only way I like it. It had to be craft in a box. Craft in a box. Give her homemade macaroni and cheese, she didn't want anything to do with it. Craft in a box. So literally, Thanksgiving, we'd be eating homemade macaroni and cheese, she'd be eating craft in a box. Loving every minute of it. Staple food in her life. Doesn't make us mad because it takes three and a half minutes to make it according to the box. Few ingredients, couple minutes, boom. Unless you're a woman in the great state of Florida. Amanda Ramirez is suing the craft company because she says it takes longer than three and a half minutes to make the macaroni and cheese. How much is she suing them for? Five million dollars. She said the prep time, opening the lid, pouring the sauce in the pouch, adding water, stirring, microwaving. She said, it's ridiculous. (laughs) Took me four minutes the other day. And here you are advertising three and a half minutes. So she's suing for $5 million. Can I tell you something? Mac and cheese may be hard. It ain't $5 million hard. Getting rid of sin in your life is hard, but it's not shed your blood hard. That's why we have the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have God's word. 
It's why we have the church. It's why we are told to wrestle with sin or that hindrance that's in your life. You know what Paul's literally saying? Start a fight with sin. And that's what some of you need to do today. Quit worrying about winning and just pick a fight with it. Start a fight with your sin. Wrestle with it. Fight with it. Punch it. The reason we're falling is we're not even fighting sin. We're letting it go. Start a fight with your sin. Take care of the sin in your life. Take care of whatever's slowing you down. Because the Bible still says, greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. If you'll start a fight with sin and the power of the Holy Spirit, you will win. So don't worry about getting rid of it. That'll come. You're not even fighting it. Just pick a fight with whatever sins in your life and let the power of God take over. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Our pastors are coming this morning. If you're here and you do not know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, that's where you start. It may be the last several weeks God's been working on your heart, convicting your heart. And I want you to come forward today during this time of music and find a pastor here at the Next Step Station, whether you're at a campus uh, or here, uh, whatever campus you're at, you find a pastor. If you're online, Pastor Jeremy's got a word for you online. Thank you, Pastor Joel, for that incredible message. You know when you're in the most dangerous place is when you continually... Um, commit the same sin over and over and you have no conviction of the Holy Spirit. When God convicts our hearts and He brings things to attention through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us once we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we need to deal with that right away and make things right and press on in our spiritual journey with Jesus. And you may be watching this morning you say, Jeremy, I've never I've never felt that conviction when I do things that are contrary to God's Word. Maybe that's because you've never started a relationship with Jesus that begins with you understanding that you're a sinner. You've disobeyed God. Your disobedience to God has separated you. Your sin has separated you. And uh, even though we try, there's nothing we can do to fix that separation between us and God except Jesus died on the cross. And His death on the cross provides a, a, a bridge between man and God. You've got to believe that. And then you have to confess Him as your personal Lord and Savior. And if God has spoken to your heart, and today you need to give your heart and life to Jesus, simply in the quietness of this moment, tell God this, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sin. Lord, I ask you to come into my heart, take away my sin, be my Savior. Lord, I give my life to you in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer just now, let me say welcome to the family. We want to celebrate with you and we want you to, we want to help you take your next steps on your faith journey with Jesus. And so, We've just dropped um, a button in the chat box that says, I commit my life to Christ. Click on that. Give us just a little bit of information. I'll be in contact with you um, this week. We want to send you some stuff in the mail um, that'll help you as you begin new life in Christ. It has been fantastic to be together this morning. I look forward to our time together each week. Hope you have a great week. God bless you. We'll see you next week. 
We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week as we help equip you to apply God's Word to your daily life. For the latest updates about what's happening around Peavine City, be sure to connect with us on social media. For more information about Peavine, to get in touch with us or check out one of our services, visit us at peavine.org. Thanks for listening.